I think it is. Nice. Good morning, everybody. As Josh said, my name is Danny Hindman, and I am the campus minister for ministry called RUF. Um, I, I ask this every time I go to any church that I'm preaching at, and I did this very recently, but so I'm assuming most of you should say yes to this, but how many of you guys have heard of RUF? All right, nice. At least you heard of it like at the beginning of the service. Um, so RUF is a campus ministry that in many ways is similar to a lot of campus ministries. Um, we believe that Christianity is true. We believe that, uh, that the time that we spend in college is deeply formative and important for, uh, for a lot of people. And it's a time to explore kind of what you believe. You're leaving the home for the first time. All these things uh, make it a really strategic place to send people, send missionaries to go speak of the gospel. Uh, there, there's Really, there's two things that um, make RUF... Uh, different from many other campus ministries that you may have heard of. And the first one is this. Uh, the first one is that you can't be a campus minister in RUF unless you have been to seminary and you're ordained in the PCA. So Josh and I are ordained in the same way, went through the same um, process. And uh, we do that as a, as a reflection of the importance that uh, the PCA views the campus with. It's, it's so important that we want to send people who have been uh, to seminary and through the ordination process. And, and the other way that RUF is unique is that we are um, specifically and self-consciously a ministry of the church on campus. And so uh, the, pres- the same presbytery that sent Josh to come down here and plant Livingstone sent me to go to UW to plant uh, an RUF campus. And what we want to do as a part of our ministry and as a reflection of that, those theological commitments are, are, are kind of three, three things. We want to reach students with the gospel of Jesus, people who have never heard it before, and there are people like that at uh, UW. We want to form all the students that we come into contact with into better lovers of God and neighbor uh, as a process through their life together and through their contact with God's word and kind of through our third uh, commitment or goal. We want to um, cultivate in our students, while they are still students, a love, a deep love for and participation in the bride of Christ, the church. And we, we think this is fundamentally important uh, always, but specifically now in our time because the plausibility of Christianity culturally is declining, and it's, it's just very important when we leave college that we have the instincts to embed ourselves into thick communities of faith, uh, which is the church. And so uh, that's what we're doing on campus, and if you want to come hear more about it, you should come down to Green Lake. Uh, I will say, don't hand me cash. <laughs> It'll never get into our ministry account. Uh, I always forget about it. Don't, please don't do that. Um, don't write personal checks. I'll tell you all about how to get the money into the, the account uh, later. But we, I would love it if you come down. And even if you, don't, if you don't have any money to give, come down and we'll have a beer together or whatever. Um, that'll be great. I'm really thankful to be with you guys this morning. And I'm thankful for Josh uh, for helping kind of put on this fundraiser too. It's really, uh, really generous act. Also, your friends from uh, Emmaus Road are going to be there too. So it's going to be a big party. That's done with. Uh, what I hear, and what I actually remember from being here earlier this summer, is you all are spending some time in the Psalms this summer. And a lot of churches do this. Um, I get to preach at a lot of churches around the state, and I, it's kind of nice in the summertime because everybody's preaching on the Psalms, and so you, just, that's, you get to stay in the Psalms uh, all together. But they do this because it's a good idea, because the Psalms, they have this um, like, almost magical quality um, of, of always being relevant, and always being instructive. 
Um, and, and it doesn't matter kind of where you are or where, uh, where the church is. It's, there, there are always points of contact to be made. I suppose that's true of all of the scriptures. But the Psalms have this particular character. And part of the reason is because they, what they do is they take all of the human experience, the range of human emotions, the range of the experience of faith, then they kind of push them through the grid of what we know to be true about God. And what you get are these unflinchingly honest texts about the experience of being a Christian or or, uh, part of the people of God, you could say it that way. Um, But they're also almost always hopeful. In fact, there's only one that doesn't end on a note of hope. And so not only do we, do we learn to kind of like process our struggles in faith uh, through the grid of what we know about God and arrive at a place of hope, uh, but we also learn that we're not alone in our longings or our frustrations. So when we have questions about God, you can almost guarantee that that same question is going to be expressed somewhere in the Psalms. Now, they also contain some of the most beautiful phrasing and poetry in all of world literature. You, you may be, most of you here are probably Christians, some of you may not be, but you can't deny that like, there is just some deeply beautiful language in the Psalms, this ancient collection of, of, of writings. Like who among us has not felt at some point that you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death? We all have felt that way. It's gorgeous. So I'm also told, you guys are looking at the Psalms, but I'm also told that you are looking at them kind of through the... Um, the, the big story that the Bible tells, the story of creation and the story of the fall of creation into sin and then the work of God in redemption through his son Jesus and then the promise of consummation. Is, this, is that right? Did I get that right? Okay. Uh, so you're kind of walking through the Psalms this way. The, that, that's the Christian account of the world, that it was created out of the overflow of the perfect Trinitarian love of God, uh, that it was broken in this catastrophic embrace of sin by our first parents, Adam and Eve, and then it was redeemed, or it was purchased back by God through his son in the incarnation and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And then that redemption is established in this kingdom. And it is here, in truth, that's what the scriptures tell us, that that kingdom has arrived in reality, but not fully. And if you know the story, you'll know, and if just if you know from your own experience, that we wait even now for what uh, the theologians have called the consummation of heaven and earth. When the two kind of realms, the divine realm and the created realm, or the divine order and the created order, come together, and when they will finally be one. And that is the la- that's the last movement in the story that the scriptures tell, or the Christian account of the world. Uh, it, and it's the story that the Bible tells, and it's the story that every human is a part of. You are somewhere in this story. And that last movement is what we're going to talk about today as we move through Psalm 145. We're going to talk about the heavenly city coming down, remaking the earthly city, and that this is the time when all of the promises of God that are guaranteed by his work on Calvary, they come to fruition. Fruition. Resurrection, restoration, glory, life, beauty, all these things forevermore. So Psalm Psalm 145 is a psalm of praise, which the little heading in the text suggests. And it's a psalm in which David, who is the king of Israel, and in many ways was the greatest king, he was also a deeply, and he was also a deeply broken man, if you are familiar with his story. It's where David, who is this guy, he, he, he waxes poetic on the glory of God, the truth about who God is, what we should do in light of that, and then the foundation of any serious call to hope. So before we get started... 
I'm going to pray, then I'm going to read the text, and then we're going to get going. So let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning um, from all different kinds of places. Uh, some of us here are deeply satisfied with the way their life is going. Some of us are deeply dissatisfied. Some of us are tired. Some of us are hungry. Some of us are poor. Some of us are angry. Um, Lord, we pray that all of us in this moment together, uh, this, this gathered community that is existing right now in this place, we, pr- we pray that you would be at work in us even now uh, in the reading and the preaching of your word, this word that you tell us has the power to change us. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would meet us wherever we are and that you would be at work in us to form us into better lovers of you and of our neighbor. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart in this sermon be acceptable in your sight. And we pray for all these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, the title of the sermon that I gave to Josh is The Song That Goes On Forever, which is, I thought was kind of a cool line that I read from this. It's not important. I read it somewhere and I was like, oh, that's a great title. Now, I suggest, I was talking to my wife, and my wife is almost always the one who comes up with my opening illustrations in a sermon, because I can just, like, never think of them, and she comes up with them right away. And so I was like, Emily, I need an opening story, and she's like, what's the sermon about? And I was like, well, it's kind of complicated, but here's the title. And uh, anybody ever watch Lamb Chops, the show? And so she, anyway, she said, this is the song that never ends, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's not what I was going to use. Anyway, very funny. She just texted me the lyrics for that for about four hours. Um, but the point, what, I, the, what she then came up with was uh, this experience that we had earlier this uh, spring. It was in April, and um, it, it was about the, she, she, was tell, she was talking to me about the, the, the character that music has, or that song has, or that poetry set to music, which is what songs typically are. What that has to take you to places, to different places, to recall you, to past experiences, to give you a taste of what is maybe to come in the future. And one of the, one of the times when we experienced this recently was at our church from seminary. So I went to a seminary down in St. Louis, and I went to a church while I was there called Grace and Peace Fellowship. And there was a pastor at that church, the, the pastor there, who became something of a mentor for me. And I learned, a, I mean, I just learned a lot about life and about ministry and about faithfulness from this man. Uh, and he retired in November of eighteen. And he died in April of 19. And um, it was, in many ways, a very, it was a very difficult thing for me to deal with. Not because I was so immediately impacted by his death, but I was angry that this man who had been so faithful and worked so hard had not had any time to relax, really, uh, after his, his death. He deserved to have a little more time, in my mind to travel and to see the people that he loved and all these things. But we went, we went back to his funeral, and he had been the pastor at this church in urban St. Louis for 30 years, I think, 25 years. And the sanctuary that we were in at Grace and Peace, it probably held like 300 people, um, and we knew it was going to be packed, and so we got there early, and it just kept filling and filling and filling. I bet there were 600 people there. I mean, it was standing room only. Um, he was... Uh, he did a lot of quiet work in racial reconciliation in the city of St. Louis that nobody knew about but the people who he was working with. And so it was about 300 white people and 300 black people in St. Louis in the same church, which never happens. Um, 
And there were some songs. There, the music at this church, Grace and Peace, was so weird and silly sometimes. But some of the songs were just gorgeous. My wife and I still sing some of these goofy songs that, we, that we'll remember forever to our kids. And one of them is this, uh, it's this old gospel song. And uh, it was like, we saw, I saw it coming in the bulletin. And I knew, I was, I was actually really excited to hear it sung. And uh, when, it, when it started, it, it has this refrain um, that's from a biblical text that I should have looked up and I can't remember. But um, the refrain that the whole congregation sings, there's like solo and then congregation. And the, the congregation sings this refrain, uh, whom shall I fear? Whom shall I fear? And it's this like swelling experience of music. And it goes like, whom shall I fear? And then there's this one guy at Grace and Peace who he just like took, up, took it upon himself to add this little extra thing to it. And he never knew where he was in the sanctuary until he sang it. And his name was Joe. And he would just belt out like in between and he would be like, whom shall I fear? Like, and when we knew that it was happening and when he hit that note, it was just like everybody started crying. And it was this moment where we, this community that was suffering, we felt, I mean, I I won't speak for everybody, I felt lifted up out of that suffering, and I was getting a picture of what it was going to be like to be worshiping God, uh, where we could express our, our, our longings and our pains and our frustrations with this life, but where God would meet us in that place and reassure us of what was true. Like, that is what is held out to us in the consummation of heaven and earth. And it was this little, tiny little taste of what I think it will be like. It was black and white. It was all kinds of different people from all kinds of different economic situations singing together, mourning, but mourning with hope. And that's similar to what's happening here in Psalm 145. So uh, Psalm 145 is a song of praise. And in this psalm, David is concerned to say what is true. What is true about God. And what David has to say in this text is, is that in the final analysis, after everything that has happened, of all this, the hard questions that this life poses to us, this is true. God is beyond us and God is good. It says, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. I will bless you every day, David says, because you are great, because the Lord is great. There is this greatness that God has that David recognizes that calls for praise, this greatness that is unsearchable. It has a depth that cannot be plumbed, a height that cannot be climbed, a power that cannot be overcome, a love from which all love that we experience is derived the purity that cannot be outdone. God is good. This is basic, but I forget this. God is good. And David is going to bless his name. He's good in his very being. And out of that being flow God's actions. And what we see in the text is that they're characterized in two ways that that David sees in verses 8 and 9. He is gracious and he is merciful. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Because of God's goodness, 
Because of God's greatness, he is merciful and he is gracious. These two different things. Mercy, we can actually, sometimes we think these are the same, mercy and grace, right? They're actually slightly different. Mercy is this relenting from punishment. It means not receiving punishment for something that you deserve it for, right? So God relents from his anger upon a world that deserves it because of us. Now, properly speaking, the fact that we still breathe is evidence of the mercy of God. I'm standing here, and in that way, God is good to all of us. I'm standing here preaching to you guys with unclean lips. Isaiah recognized this, and he said, woe is me. The fact that I am still here, and I'm even afraid to actually say this. The fact that I am still here preaching to you right now is evidence of God's relenting upon me. But God's greatness doesn't only issue in mercy, it shows itself in grace. Grace, which is not simply relenting in punishment or like getting back to zero or neutral. But going over the top. Overflowing the cup of blessing. And we actually see this too in God's encounter with Isaiah. I don't know if you remember the story, but when God calls Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah's like, oh my gosh, I'm not fit to be a prophet. My lips are unclean. And God sends an angel, basically, to come down with a hot coal and he touches him on his lips. You know what that means? He is purifying the very thing that Isaiah is terrified about the uncleanliness of. Touches him on his lips, healing him at the very point of need. Commissioning to use his unclean mouth as a prophet. This is the truth about God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all goodness, all beauty, all love, all mercy, all grace, everything that is good is derivative of this fundamental goodness of God. The mercy, the grace, the love of God. And that is an occasion for praise forever and ever. So David recognizes this. He says, God, you are good. But he also recognizes that, and this is actually true, that once we begin to see this, uh, once we begin to catch a glimpse of what it means to be called into God's people, and we begin to see what our vocation is, like what our calling is. And that vocation, at its very core, is to be a people who mediate the good news of God to the world, of God's mighty acts. Look at verses 4 through 7. He says, one generation, he, he, he talks about how great God is, and then he says, one generation shall commend your works to another. And shall declare your mighty acts. That's what we're doing right now. <laughs> I will declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and, and, and on your wondrous works. I will meditate. They will speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. And then you skip down to verse 10. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to them, to the children of man, your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. To be called into the people of God is to then be called out into the world. To speak of what he has done and what he will do in time and space. It's to, be, it's, it's to be called into the ministry of declaring the praises of him, of God, who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Verse 11, we are to speak the glory of God's kingdom and to tell of his power. 
to tell people about what God has done in history, like the crucifixion, right? And in your own life. Verse 12, to make known to the children of men the glorious splendor of your kingdom, how good it is to be where God is. It's to carry out these, the implications of this story in works of justice and, 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 and division, to heal division and to, to embody hospitality. This is our vocation. This is what all of us are called to be. The word the Bible uses for this is priests. We're to be a nation of priests. To be hearers and doers of the word, of the story of God. To be a people whose life is built around giving thanks. Giving thanks for what God has done and what God is doing. And God is at work still. And to participate in that work even now. Verse 10, he says, All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. There's another place in the Psalms where it's reflecting on what it means to be a human being. It says, We are his handiwork. We are his creatures, his created beings. So we are his works, and we shall praise him. We shall give thanks to him. That's what, that's, that should be the fundamental characteristic of the Christian life, is to be a people of thanksgiving. All that we are and do is to be wrapped up in this basic posture as we speak of God's glory. And this is really important, I think, if we're going to take up our vocation as um, like tell, doers and tellers of God's word out into the world, this people who, who will tell the world the mighty acts of God, proclaim his excellencies, as uh, Peter says, if, if we're going to do that, and we're going to do that in a healthy way, we've got to be in the process of becoming people of virtue, people of piety and of holiness, of, uh, people who, who are marked by this posture of thanksgiving when we go out into the world. To be a person of virtue in the vision of the Bible it begins with this basic way of being, of, of, of being grateful. People who, who are able to express their thanksgiving, people who have a recognition that, that I am what I am because of the grace of God, because of God's work in me. That's the only way to avoid the pitfalls of pride and of, and of, and of power and all these things that Christians are notoriously known for. It's the only way to be, be a people who go out into the world and do all this work um, and, and keep from seeking your own glory. People who understand their vocation as one of service. Like, what do we have that we have not received? Nothing. And so in this, we follow our Lord who did not take power for himself for, like, the sake of the greatest reach or influence, which he could have done. But he gave himself up in humiliation and in humility to death on a Roman cross. Brothers and sisters, we must know the words of God's mighty acts, yes. But we must also know the tune. And for David, and he is right, these two things together constitute our vocation as God's people. Rooted in what is true, called to tell the work of what God has done. So that, that's, that's our vocation. That's kind of, David begins with this declaration of the goodness of God, and then he reflects on what that means for God's people then. But all of this, all of this is directed towards something. It's directed towards an end. And that end is this. 
We talked about it a little bit before. It's the consummation of heaven and earth. That is to say that the Christian account of the world, which is what we think is true about the world, if you're here and you're a Christian, what the world is, where it's been, what's happening here, where it's going, all these things, all this is oriented towards a consummate hope. A hope that is a hope that is embedded in and directed towards this promised consummation that the Bible holds out for people even now, of heaven and earth, of the divine order and the created order coming together. When God, who has freed us from our bondage to sin, finally frees us or eradicates the presence of sin. Entirely. Verses 14 to 20 talk a little bit about what this will be like and what God does for all of us who are falling. He says, The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you. And you give them the food, their food in due season. You open their hand. You satisfy every desire of every, the, the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but the wicked, all the wicked, he will destroy. Now, I think it's helpful to know that this last section of the Psalms, like the last five or so, was probably collected and included after Israel, the people of God, was kicked, they were kicked out of their land and sent into exile. You, you guys have heard this story before? There were people that needed to know that in the immediacy of their pain and frustration and their anger with their life, that God was still there. He was still working to draw them into a more real and robust faith. And David leads his people in reminding them of this. He didn't, he didn't put this at the end of the Psalms, but someone took this Psalm that he had wrote and moved it to the end in reminding them that God did this for them. The people, they were sent into exile for a reason. To, 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 to make them a more faithful people. And he did this for him in David's exile. David had a kind of exile in his life. If you go back and read the story of his life. And he will do this for, for his people in their exile. And he will do it finally in the last day for us. For people who are embracing this life. To be in exile in a culture that doesn't understand us. He does these things now, yes, and you've probably experienced this a little bit. He upholds the falling. He raises up those who are bowed down. He provides what we need. He satisfies us. He comes near to us. He fulfills our desire. He hears and saves and preserves us. But he only does that in part now. Which is to say, not as he will. And this is our hope. Our hope is in the consummation of heaven and earth. This is the consummate hope of the Christian life. That as we go out and we take up our vocation as as tellers and doers of the story of God, as we proclaim his excellencies to our neighbors, as we love God and love our neighbor, we do so with hope. Not just some bland feeling of hope, but a specific hope in the consummation of heaven and earth. In the promises of God to do it, he does already in fullness in the last day. And here's why this matters. If you go out into the world without the recognition that the world as it is is not how it will be, if you go out to do the work of God's people, carrying the blessing of God's 
uh, of God's goodness to all corners of the world without the understanding that the presence and the effects of sin are still with us, but one day will not be, you will not be able to, un- to withstand the resistance that you're going to encounter. You'll take your lack of success and, and, and your own uh, your lack of success in your own life of killing the sin within you and, 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 and your life together and your interaction with the world as a sign that maybe you were mistaken about this Jesus thing. This is what the theologians mean when they talk about Christianity as a, uh, as a, as a, a religion or a faith that is fundamentally dependent on, rooted in, oriented towards the future. Because things are not now as they will be. Jesus says you'll be hated, you'll be persecuted, you'll encounter resistance for his name's sake. But if you remember that this work is going somewhere, and that somewhere is not just some vague somewhere, some not here, but is a specific somewhere where there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, After all is said and done, this is the news that we carry out into the world. This is the account of God's work in the world. And the shorthand way of saying all this is the gospel. This news is true. That God will satisfy the desires, the deepest desires. Not the surface desires that express themselves in all kinds of broken ways in all of our lives. He will satisfy fully the desires of all who fear him. And that desire at the very core of our being is to see him. Josh prayed before the service that we are together seeking his face. That's where we are all in our own broken ways reaching out. We all want to see God as he is and we will. That is what is held out as our consummate hope. David gives it to us here. Because this is actually true. This is not some way, this is not some therapy. This is true. This is the Christian account of the world, the way that the world is and where it's going. Because this is true, I'm going to do my best, and I want you all to do this with me from a couple hours away. To follow David, not in every way. Most definitely not in every way. But in this way. To speak the praise of the Lord. And that all of my flesh, and not just my words, but all of me, all of my flesh, my mind, my body, everything, be used to bless his holy name as a people of thanksgiving forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this word to us, this psalm that tells us of of what you do for us now and what you will do for us in the last day. Lord, we pray that we would not lose our sense of longing as we wait. That we would not give in to cynicism. That we would not be overcome with pride as we are full, as we are filled by your spirit and drawn up into the glory of your story. Lord, that we would be a people of thanksgiving that move out into the world to tell your story. That is both a story of what you have done and what you will do. Lord, help us because this is not natural for us. 
None of it is natural. And so we ask that you would be with us even now, even today, as we go out of this place and into all the places that you have called us this week. Lord, help us to be the kind of people that are able to do this well. We pray for all these things in your son's name. Amen.